Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page 816 in the church Bibles. And um, this morning we're going to read from verses 5 all the way to 12. I'll read and you'll listen and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Okay, let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. After I, <clears throat> the I is Paul, after Paul, I, Paul, go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with my brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, and may God alone grant us understanding of it. Let's pray together. Father, please, for Jesus' sake, make this book live in us. Show us ourselves, show us yourself, and show us our Savior And make this book live in us. We need so much help now, Lord. We pray that you would break our hearts and stir our hearts for each other and for those outside of Jesus. As we pray in his name, amen. Well, as you can see, if your Bible is open, we're very near the end of our studies in 1 Corinthians. And I think it would help us to remember that when this letter was received by the church, it was actually a real church. It was a real church filled with a group of people living in a real point in time and in a real place in time with all the real challenges fallen people and a fallen world deal with on a regular basis. So you could say there were common people just like you and I. There's moms and dads. There were husbands and wives. There were singles, youths, employees, employers. There were students, artists, uh, civil servants, and so on. Common people with all the common challenges and the common problems and the common hopes of fallen people in a fallen world trying to make their way in the universe. Much the same as, as we are this morning. Yet still, still each one was given a common ministry, a, a ministry, a service to Christ, in Christ, in the church, and for the world. Indeed, here in these closing verses, uh, the apostle is giving us, if you like, patterns and principle for ministry, for service. That's why we, we go through the Bible verse by verse. And that's why we wouldn't skip a chapter like this, which at least on the surface says, well, how are you going to preach from that? We can't do that. These are, these are insights from Paul, uh, a divine insights, what he's doing, why he's doing it, how he's doing it, and who, who's he doing it with. And that's going to take us straight to our first point this morning. And if you have a worship folder, you can see it in the back. And the point is pretty simple. When the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, he calls them to service. If you like, when Christ saves people, one of the things he begins to do, guaranteed, is he puts them to work in the church 
and he sends them out to work in the world. If you want a really helpful Bible study, work through every conversion which was recorded for us in the New Testament. And if you do that, you'll find two things. The first thing you'll find is this. As soon as a person finds Jesus Christ, they begin to find others. Right? That's John chapter 1, verses 41 and following. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, is converted and immediately he takes Peter to Jesus. And after Peter gets to Jesus, then Peter goes and gets a few more people. In other words, as soon as a person finds Jesus Christ, they begin to find others. That's the New Testament witness. The second thing is, as soon as a person finds Christ, they congregate with others who also have found Jesus Christ. They congregate as a body. As a church body, they share their lives in meaningful ways. They share the work of the church in proper ways. They are a visible expression of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ to the world. In other words, people in the New Testament didn't get saved from their sins and then go, super, glad that's done, now on with life. This is great, I'm saved, got that taken care of, now onward. And then never to serve and never to worship or never to give or to evangelize in any meaningful way. Why are those things so? They are so because when the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, he calls them to service. If your Bible's open, we didn't read these verses, but look at there. Verse 15, the household of Stephanus. And there's two other names, Fortunatus and Achaeus. Verse 17, verse 12, Apollos. Verse 10, a name that's familiar with many of us, Timothy. And of course, Paul himself. All had been called to service. Just as every one of us here this morning who named the name of Jesus Christ, we have been called equally to his service. And why is that so? It's so because when the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, he calls them to service. Therefore, it will never be in the church. Now, pay attention to this. It'll never be in the church that some are the servants and others are the served. It's not going to be the case. But rather, all who are called to Jesus Christ are servants and consequently, all are called to serve. This is a every member ministry church. It's a New Testament pattern. Christian workers work as a pattern of life. Work You say, I thought the work was the stuff that I did Monday through Friday or Saturday. Well, if your Bible's open, look at verse 9. A great door of effective work. Verse 10, Timothy is carrying on the work of the Lord. Just as Paul, verse 15, there's a certain family who devoted themselves to the service of the Lord or to the work of the Lord and to the saints. Verse 16, all those who are joined or called to join in the, what does it say there? Work. And once again, Why is this so? Well, it's so because when the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, when he converts them, he calls them to service. So whether we're called to serve in the capacity of an elder or a pastor, a teacher, acts of mercy, uh, labor for the church, care, evangelism, missions, whether you're paid or unpaid, and the distinction there is not a value but a function, or whether you're called to something entirely different. All of us who name the name of Jesus Christ are called to a life, a pattern of life, in service in the church. So every age and every stage in life, every age and stage of our pilgrimage on this earth, the call to service remains. So service is where it's at. Ministry in the body of Christ, to the body of Christ, through the body of Christ is not something that we do 
And then we have this hope that if we do it enough, or if we get old enough, or if things get busy enough, we can be promoted past all this service stuff. Now, that's cool in the office, right? In the office, in the company, you work really hard and you try to get promoted. It's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you have people um, doing stuff for you instead of you doing stuff for people. That's fine in that realm, but it is not fine in this realm. Jesus says, that's the way pagans think. That's the way that unbelievers look at things. This is not to be so with people who follow Jesus. It's a familiar scripture, Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, our example in everything, did not come to be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, in our expression of service, the giving up of our life, the giving up of our small ambitions, the rearranging of our life for the work is when Jesus says greatness is realized. Now, that's hard to do and perhaps it's hard to believe in century 21 in America, particularly when there are so many other definitions of greatness which are constantly set before us. So you have a picture of a servant who week by week, serving God and serving his people in the local church, doing common things, and speaking of Jesus in the most difficult of settings, and it's wearing on them. It's wearing on them because it does. And then you have a picture of a person standing over a mountainside, looking oh so fresh, with their hands up to the sky, with the caption below, it's all yours, go get it, you deserve it, your best life now. Wow. I found this quote about a month ago, and I've been trying to find a sermon where I could put it in. I think I did find one. It's actually a true quote from a book called The Travels of Lady Bulldog Burton. And listen to what she said. I used to look at Jinx and marvel at her smooth complexion. But over the years, I've come to realize that she has been spared wrinkles by virtue of never having succumbed to any heavy Thought. (laughs) Loved ones, you are sensible people. Which one of the pictures that I gave you as a way of life, as a pattern of life, appeals to our flesh? And which one pictures and pleases Christ as a way of life? You see, what was true for the believers in Corinth, what was true for Paul and Timothy and the ministry team, what is true for them is just as vitally true for us who believe in Cohasset. So the principle Paul is applying at the close of the letter remains vital now just as it was then. Nothing's changed. The principle, when the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, when he saves them, he calls them to service. That's the first point. Second point, then, is what Jesus calls us to is his work. And so what Paul's going to give to us is a divine pattern. Just what is God's work, right? So you'll see this if your Bible's open. I hope it is. The principle comes out clearly in verse 10. Paul writes, Timothy is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Argon kurio ergitsotai. That's the Greek. It means works of the Lord, he works, okay? Works of the Lord, He works. Okay, Paul. Okay, Timothy. What are you guys doing? Well, we're not trying to build a ministry empire. We're not trying to search deep into the heart of God and find out what he really, really wants. We're not trying to take the miracle and music show on the road because, you know, people really like that these days. 
No, we're doing the work of the Lord. Jesus commanded his disciples what to do before he left this world at his ascension. That's Matthew 28, 18 and following. Jesus showed his disciples what to do by den of instruction and example as he walked this earth before his crucifixion. That's the four gospels. Jesus taught his disciples what to do and even how to preach himself from the scripture on at least four different Sundays after his resurrection, before his ascension. That's John 20, Luke 23 and 24, and Matthew 28. And what we have is recorded for us in the scriptures, what then is the work of the Lord? So let me just ask it as a straight question. What is the work of the Lord? Is it anything I want it to be? You know, with a little bit of religion to it? No. The work of the Lord is nothing more than the ministry of Jesus Christ given to us from his word, now active among and through his people. And this is basic Christianity. The work of the Lord is nothing more than the ministry of Jesus Christ, given to us from his word, seen in the gospels, seen and explained in the epistles, now active among and through his people. Therefore, A church may be very busy doing something, but if our service is not the ministry of Jesus Christ, explained to us in the Gospels and seen in the Gospels and explained and seen in the Epistles, now active among and through his people, we're nothing more than busybodies. And on the last day, 1 Corinthians 3.13, it will be shown as such. That's why when you walk out those doors this morning and you see all those tables, every one of those tables is dripped and dipped in gospel work. It has to be. Why does it have to be? Because it's the work of the Lord. It's the work of the Lord. So you say, Paul, what what are you doing here? Well, what Paul was doing was what Jesus was doing when Jesus walked the earth. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was advancing the gospel, correcting error, establishing the church, and establishing the gospel in the church. Because so much of this letter is corrections. You guys are doing this wrong, and you're doing this wrong, and you do this better. So, Paul, what are you doing? Well, I want to see unbelievers converted to the faith. I want to see believers in the church established in the faith. And I'm going to preach the faith. Just like Jesus? Yeah, just like Jesus. And everything which took place in the church in Corinth and all the other churches of Asia Minor were to serve that purpose. And again, from my lips to God's ears, we are trying hard here at West Cohasset to that end. That's what we're trying to do. Everything that we try to do is just dripping and dipping in the gospel. Let me give you one principle I think that will help you as Christians. Galatians 2.20. It says this, a familiar scripture. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, here's what Paul is saying in that. He, Jesus, he gave his life for me. Okay, cross, right? That he in turn might take my life from me. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay? He, Jesus, gave his life for me. That in turn, he might take my life from me. It's his now. In order that he may live his life through me. And you see, that's the key. Live his life through ordinary people like you and I. So, while we can say with absolute certainty... On one level, the work of the Lord is anything we put our hands to which we seek to bring glory to Jesus Christ, right? So you're you're washing your babies down and you want to bring Christ's glory in that, you're doing the work of the Lord. You're doing the dishes, painting the house, windows, whatever it is. As long as you're doing it as unto the Lord and not for man, 
Not to be seen by man. Galatians 3.23, then it's the work of the Lord. However, what we can also say with absolute certainty, that the work of the Lord is to see unbelievers converted, believers established, and everything in the local church which serves that purpose is Argo, Kurio, Urgutsotai. Works of the Lord we work. That's what Paul's saying. So, in the most Christian of ways, what Paul is saying is, work it, girl. <laughs> work it, guy. Do the work of the Lord. Because we were born to be involved in the work of the gospel. This is why we're born again. This is when we're most like Jesus. We were born to be involved in the work of the gospel. We were born to suffer for the gospel. We were born to rearrange our life for the gospel. We were born to reproduce our life and the life of others with Christ's power. We were born to be absorbed and seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. Golly, I hope that doesn't bore you. What else were we put on this planet for as Christians? We were born to be gospel people. We were born to be tied to the local church. There was a guy named Alan Redpath. He lived at the close of the 20th century and he would go around to church to church and say this to them and and. And this is what he said. He was quoting statistics given to him on the average American congregation. He said, of all those who appear, whose names appear on the list of congregations throughout America on average, this is what he says, 5% don't exist. 10% can't be found. 50% only attend on Sunday. 75% never come to corporate prayer. And 95% have never led another person to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not good. So we can't hide behind the whatever we do passage then think that we can skip over the what we must do passages. The work of the Lord is to see unbelieving people believe and to see believers established in the faith in the church. The work of the Lord is advancing the gospel, guarding the gospel, establishing the gospel inside the church. The the work of the Lord is tied to Jesus The work of the Lord is tied to our conversion. The work of the Lord is our conduct worthy of the gospel so the outsider can see Jesus in us. So, okay, we must sit and listen. We have to. We we better Sunday by Sunday. But when we sit down and listen, in part, we sit down and listen to get up and go, to serve others and the world. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, You keep saying local church, local church, local church. And I know why you're saying it because you're a pastor. And pastors should say local church, local church, local church. Well, let me show you from the Bible why the work of the Lord is tied to the local church. How do we know this? Well, let me give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. This is what Paul says to the church. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Now, we need to get this. The work of the Lord through Paul was to do what? He goes into Corinth and he preaches the gospel. People are converted. The converted congregate. The church is established. That's the work of the Lord. That's the main and plain work of the Lord. He has a divinely appointed specific task. And so in the exact same way, the Lord calls his people in his church to these specific responsibilities in terms of Christian ministry and service. We go out, we come back. We go out, we come back. We serve here, we serve out there. So we have to ask ourselves the question, right? Where am I in relation to the specific task of gospel framework ministry? 
Where am I? I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, where am I in my life, in my framework right now of declaring the truth of the gospel and in my involvement in the local church? You know, if I understand that I've been called not only to sit and absorb, but I've been called to grow and go, go to fish and feed, uh, to, to help and serve, then where am I in this truth? Now, we've already been told that there's no age or stage where you can opt out of this. So you see, God has given the church people like me, Ephesians 4, pastors, so that people like you can be equipped to do the work of ministry. And I'm trying like the Dickens to do my thing. And I think, honestly, many of you are trying like the Dickens to do your thing. But there are some, perhaps, who really don't do anything. But now you know. Now you know. And again, what will the work of the Lord do? Well, in part, believers will congregate and unbelievers will be converted. That's the work of the Lord. That's the main work of the Lord. And, you know, as you think about this, I promise you this is not what uh, popular Christianity will tell you. Popular Christianity will tell you it's all about you. So you need to fix yourself up. You need to lose a few pounds for Jesus. You You need to live a really high quality life. And you need to find the champion in you. And then the whole church stuff and the come and go stuff, you know, that's, that's really at your leisure. Listen carefully. Popular Christianity, by and large, begins with this premise. There's something missing in you. Jesus didn't apparently give you everything you need for life and spirituality. And we've got Formula One for you. We've got the formula for you. That's popular Christianity. Popular Christianity, it's not all there. Go get it. Biblical Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, it's all there. Jesus gave it to you at your conversion. Enjoy it. Spread it. And live your life in light of it. I hope you get that. I hope you get that. It's essential that you get that. Number one, when the Lord Jesus Christ calls himself to himself, calls people to himself, he calls them to service. What Jesus calls us to is his work. Thirdly, the people Jesus calls to his work are not always ideal, are they? And so look who God chooses to put in the thick of the work in Corinth. There he is, Timothy. Right, the man who was at least on the surface not able to do this kind of work. I mean, everything we know about Timothy from the New Testament, he was a naturally timid young man. His stomach was always rumbling because he gets so nervous. And he would go into a place, at least on the surface, that would eat him alive. And I guarantee you that, that Timothy probably would not have been on anyone's top 10 ministry list. Least of all, a list in our day. The place Corinth was oozing with confidence and disobedience and arrogance and sexual temptation. Just as bad as the internet. And he's a young man. And his chemistry is all fired up. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. For he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. Well, what Paul is doing is essentially bubble wrapping Timothy. I mean, that's what he's doing, right? He's bubble Don't hurt him. Don't you hurt him. He's doing the work of the Lord just like I am. And then look at your Bible, verse 12, Apollos. There's Apollos who apparently won't do what Paul, an apostle, wants him to do. So, so you have Barney Fife. Remember Barney Fife from Andy Griffith's show? So most of you remember. That's Timothy. 
He's naturally timid. He shakes everywhere he goes. Paul says, you better be nice to him because if you don't, he might pass out on you, right? Then you got Tom Cruise. You have Apollos, the gifted orator who probably does his own stunts like Tom Cruise does. And apparently he's so sure of himself that he won't listen to an apostle. Barney Five, Timothy, tummy gets nervous. He needs a little wine now and then to, to calm down his stomach. Medicinal only. <laughs> and, and he's chronologically disadvantaged and he's a young introvert. And then you got Tom Cruise, Apollos, who, verse 12b, doesn't think it's time to go to Corinth. Making it so that Paul has to affirm, now pay attention, Paul has to affirm to the church, there's going to be a time when Apollos will go to Corinth. So there's a little something, something going on there between these two guys, right? Between Paul and Apollos, you have an immovable force meets an unstoppable object. By the way, you see the last word in verse 12, uh, translated opportunity, see it there? That word can be translated leisure, as in at Apollos' leisure. In other words, hey Paul, I'll go to Corinth when I'm ready to go to Corinth. <laughs> now, let's make some application here. Where do we get the idea that says the kind of people Jesus calls to service, or at least the really good ones, are bright and bold and beautiful? Where does that come from? Because it doesn't come from the Bible. Or the really good ones are the guys like Apollos. They're strong and they're lean and they're mean. And they can stand up to people. A muscular Christian. In every sense of the word. Or they're so in touch with Jesus that they have the wow factor. Right? And that's what people need to see this day. They need to see the wow factor. Listen. Ministry is not supposed to be like America's Got Talent. Right? If you're on America's Got Talent, you need the wow factor if you want to win the thing. But where do you need the wow factor in Christian ministry? Well, what is that? This is not entertainment. This is life and death service. And so the people will say, it makes no sense at all that you, the mighty apostle Paul, you're going to take the gospel that you were to guard and you were entrusted with, and you're going to give it to Harry Milktoast Timothy. You're going to give it to Barney Fife. He's timid naturally. He has an upset stomach all the time. People can run roughshod over him because he hasn't maybe didn't even hit middle age. And then there's Apollos, and tall and dark and handsome with the personality and the wow factor and talent. And I, bet, I bet if he had a walnut, he could put it in his bicep and crush it. I'm sure he could do it. And then you're putting Timothy in the context of Corinth. In Corinth, everybody thought they knew everything about Jesus and church, and they didn't know a thing. And the people say, Paul, why are you sending this boy here? Why? Well, here's why. Number one, practical. Apollos won't go. Apollos won't go. Number two, theological. Jesus gives the work and Jesus calls the person and the people that Jesus calls to his work, they're not always ideal. They are not superman or superwoman. So, so what do we know? Well, we know that in the economy of God, weakness is power and power is weakness. 2 Chronicles 26, 15, and 16. For King Uzziah was marvelously, marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. I can't get over this in the Bible. The, the men over 50 in the Bible, when they go south, 
The vast majority of them go south when they're over 50. I mean, it's pretty practical, right? You've been through all the kid years and you got a little bit of money and you got a little time and you got a little strength and you kind of know how the world works. So you're not afraid of all that stuff anymore. It's all behind you. Now in front of you. Yeah, well, when Uzziah was helped greatly until he was strong. And at 55 years old, he became strong and he grew proud to his destruction. Uh, Come down from the cross, Jesus. You saved people. You did miracles. I saw it. Are you that weak that you you can't come down from the cross? Save yourself? The Sunday before I left for my three month sabbatical last year, I said this. In our culture, strength or a position of strength is praised, is cherished, and much sought after. And weakness, weakness is despised and thought of as a defect. Weakness means we're failing. Meekness means we've missed something. Or in some circles, weakness means we've missed God's best. Strength is praised, applauded, cherished, and much sought after. Weakness is despised, avoided, and if we are weak, it somehow means we've muddled things up somewhere down the line. And then I said, from a very early age, in fact, as far back as I can remember, I have mostly felt weak. And this feeling has, by and large, has stayed with me since. So that I think I can safely say, in all my years thus far, I've rarely felt strong. I've rarely felt like a winner, as many would define that term today. And this, I think, is a mercy because I know That God will not allow any of us to remain with the idea or impression that we are strong. He won't. He can't. He can't. And by the way, when Paul addresses the Thessalonian church, when he talks to them about leadership, he tells them, hold your leaders in the highest regard and love. Okay, why, Paul? Because of their personality? No. But because of their work. That's why you hold them in high regard. So, so Paul commends Timothy to the Corinthian church. He doesn't say, okay, I want to make sure that Timothy has nothing to fear because he's a great guy, because he has a wow factor, because he has a really great sense of humor. He's a young man. He's got all those cute little kids. He's one of the nicest people you'll know. No, he says, I want to make sure that Timothy has nothing to fear because he is carrying on the work of the Lord. That's why. That's why. Number one, when the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, he calls them to service. Two, when Jesus calls us to is his work. Three, people Jesus calls to his work are not always ideal. I mean, most of us are just ordinary people doing, doing extraordinary work in the name of Jesus Christ. Finally, number four, the places Jesus calls us to, they're not always idea, ideal as well, right? The places Jesus calls us to are not always ideal as well. We have a little saying around here that we say, there's no ideal place to serve God except the place where he puts you, right? So if your Bible's open, Paul gives his itinerary beginning in verse 5, right? And he's making it so that the gospel is central in his itinerary. The gospel is moving him from place to place. Then verse 8, but I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. Now, one of the things I like about Paul is that he's always looking ahead, and when he sees rough seas, he doesn't always turn ship. 
He's ready to go, go, go for Jesus and change his plans, delay his trip to Corinth because he won't be happy until he, he knows that more and more people love Jesus Christ and honor Jesus Christ. And, and here in Ephesus is this great opportunity. The gospel door has swung wide open in Ephesus. And so you're like, well, great. Then everybody wants to know Jesus in Ephesus. No, not so fast. Verse 8 again, a great door of effective work, but there are many who oppose me. Loved ones, let us be done once and for all with the foolishness of thinking that if we're really in touch with God and if you're really doing everything his way and you're really in his will, it will all go smoothly. That is a widespread notion which is completely unbiblical. Great opportunity, says Paul. Yeah, but you know what? Great opposition as well. Great opposition as well. So do you think that we can invade the devil's territory and expect no countermeasures from the kingdom of evil? I mean, do you think that we can have open air preaching of the gospel, give away tons of free meals and candy and toys, invading the territory of the dam and not face opposition? Now, we can certainly sip our coffee, you know, rub each other's backs, do nice things in-house, silence our witness in the public square for Jesus Christ, and never know opposition. And then assume, wow, Jesus must really like me. No one's really opposing me. Things are going smoothly. When point of fact, we may be anemic, sterile, ineffective, and bordering on useless. But I can guarantee you that you take Jesus into the circles you run in. You take the one true gospel into the circles you move in. There will be opposition. There will be opposition. Paul's great door of opportunity emphasis was this. The city was filled with idol worships, worshipers, the occult, sexual perversion and prostitution, Acts chapter 19, and the people there were taught, this is what it means to be religious. And Paul walks into that circumstance. He challenges it with the truth of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel was so successful and powerful that there was an economic downturn for an idol maker named Demetrius, right? Demetrius is making tons of money making these idols. And all of a sudden, there's a downturn. Nobody wants the idols anymore. So Demetrius gets his business group together and he says, let's get Paul's friends and let's get Paul and let's drag them into the public square and let's get a little bit of intimidation. Let's show these guys who's boss. And then, after they do that, there's people walking around that are Jewish and they're trying to cast out demons just like Paul. And then, you have the Jewish people who basically want Paul dead. So this is his opportunity. A city full of paganism and occultism and demonism and racism and superstition, sexual vice and religious bigotry. And Paul says, wow, that is a great door of ministry opportunity. And you know what? I think I'll stay longer. I'll think I'll stay longer. A great door of, a, of, a, of effective work is open and I have a lot of people who don't like it. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is no ideal place to serve Jesus Christ except the place he plants you. 72 degrees. Los Angeles, California. Just about every day and night. Sunny. Beaches. Wow. That'd be great. Northern Minnesota. Slippery, slippery ice and snow and... Poor little Joe, can't even drive in the snow and 
one inch of snow, and he's like, 30 miles an hour on a 50-mile-an-hour road. There is no ideal place to serve Jesus Christ except the place that he plants you. The presence of opposition does not mean that we have moved out of God's will. It is more than likely meaning that we are right smack in the middle of it. And for those who tell you that everything will go always smoothly when you're in step with God, you tell them to have a Coke and a smile, zip their lip, and read their Bibles. In fact, let me just say it like this. If you're looking for a smooth life in our context right now, at least at this part of our history, I can tell you exactly how to do it. Don't take the gospel anywhere. You just concentrate on you and yourself and your kids and your job. And I guarantee you, more than likely, if you're halfway decent at that stuff, you'll have a smooth life. That wasn't Paul. It wasn't Timothy. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't his followers. Number one. When Jesus Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to service. This is a great quote. There's not a single inch of our life over which Jesus Christ did not say, this is mine. And and who would you want to say that other than Jesus? Right? There's not a single inch of your life over which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine. Two, the work is is the gospel work. Three, we're not always ideal servants. Four, the places where Jesus puts us, they're not ideal as well. But here we are. And we have the work. And it's the Lord's work. And when the church of Jesus Christ gives up on the Lord's work, it will be forced to find something else to replace it. And you know what? Some churches, they already have. They already have. It was Friday night. Had a long day here and I was home and I was walking down my basement stairs and this probably happens to you, it happens to me a lot. I just had these feelings of fear about ministry stuff. And it was like, oh, it was bad. And it was on a Friday too. <laughs> and so immediately I began to tell myself the gospel. And, and I swear to you, at that moment, I almost passed out for the good. I was just like, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for everything you did on the cross for me. To make a moment like this, and when I was cantering down the stairs, because I could have fell. <laughs> make it all okay. You ask yourself, what do you owe Jesus Christ? And I answer that question personally, everything. <laughs> everything. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the clarity of the Bible. We thank you for the preservation of the Bible. We thank you that when we clearly understand the Bible, it is your voice that we hear. So Father, in the context of our worship service this morning, will you please make those things that were true and good and necessary stay with us, hound us if need be, until we set ourselves to the paces that you would like us to in light of what you've done for us through the giving of your son on the cross of Calvary as he suffered and died for our sins. And Father, may we be good workers. We're we're not always going to be ideal. We'll mess up a whole lot. Place isn't going to be perfect. We understand that. Make us good servants for Jesus' sake. 
And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all who believe. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen.